Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. course of my research, I discovered that not only was the myth false, uh, we don't have de facto segregation. What we have is segregation that the courts called the jury, segregation that was created and structured by very explicit government policy uh, designed to create racial segregation in every metropolitan area in the country. And the policies are so effective that they determine the residential boundaries in urban areas today. Hello, this is Bryce Merriman, and you're listening to the Homeland Lab podcast. One of the most insightful and eye-opening books I've read this year has been Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Rothstein is a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute and a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And in his authoritative account of this chapter in our history, He tracks laws, policies, and regulations from the early 1900s through to contemporary America to show how specific government actions either created or fortified existing patterns of residential segregation throughout the country. In laying bare this history, Rothstein shows how these governmental actions have continuing ripple effects that we, as a country, are still confronting today, and he invites us to take up that legacy for the betterment of our democracy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Richard, and I invite you to read his book. I, I wanted to start our conversation today um, with an idea that really undergirds the entire book, which is that where we live matters, both for the individual and collectively for the strength of our communities and ultimately for the strength of our democracy. Can you talk about why that issue of residential integration matters so much to you personally that you've dedicated your career to it? Well, every metropolitan area in this country is residentially segregated, and I've lived in many of them, and there have been has been residential segregation everywhere I've lived. Uh, I was for many years uh, an education policy analyst concerned with uh, closing or narrowing the achievement gap between uh, African-American and white children. That was the field I worked in. And it became obvious to me that the achievement gap could never be closed uh, so long as we were concentrating the most disadvantaged African-American children in single schools in segregated neighborhoods. And so in order to solve these educational problems, I realized that we had to figure out how to desegregate neighborhoods And in order to desegregate neighborhoods, we needed to understand how they came to be that way, because we have a national myth that prevents us from doing anything to desegregate. The myth is that this all happened by accident. It happened, uh, the term we give it is de facto segregation. We all use that term. And it means segregation that happened because of private prejudice or people's choices of wanting to live with same race neighbors, or maybe because of income differences but nothing that government required. And so there's no constitutional remedy for it. Uh, What happened by accident has to be undone by accident. And so I realized that if that uh, 
myth, which I now call a myth, was true, then we'd have to live with residential segregation uh, for the foreseeable future. But in the course of my research, I discovered that not only was the myth false, uh, we don't have de facto segregation. What we have is segregation that the courts called the jury, segregation that was created and structured by very explicit government policy uh, designed to create racial segregation in every metropolitan area in the country. And the policies are so effective that they determine the residential boundaries in urban areas today. So knowing this history, knowing how the government created racially divided cities is essential to uh, enable us to have the kinds of conversations necessary to remedy it. Because if it was created by government, then it can be undone by government. Do you have a sense of why we forgot that history? Well, I think one reason is it's much more difficult to remedy residential segregation than the other kinds of segregations that we've abolished. You know, we started in the 1930s by abolishing segregation in law schools, and then we went on to uh, graduate schools and then to colleges. And then in 1954, with the Brown versus Board of Education decisions, uh, elementary and secondary schools. And then in the 1960s, we passed civil rights laws that uh, abolished segregation in buses and restaurants and even water fountains. But abolishing residential segregation is much more difficult. We've ignored the biggest segregation of all, even though we've uh, abolished all these other forms of segregation. We say we understand that segregation is unconstitutional, a violation of civil rights, um, but we've ignored it because it's so difficult to deal with. If we abolish segregation on buses or in water fountains, the next day you can sit any, anywhere you want on a bus or drink from any water fountain. But if you abolish segregation in housing, nothing's different the next day. It mm. requires to undo a federal policy that created the segregation. It requires much more aggressive policy than abolishing segregation in these other areas. So since it's so difficult, I think we've rationalized it with this myth that it happened by accident, and therefore we're neither obligated to do anything about it, nor are we permitted to do anything about it. Mm. So this past weekend, we celebrated Veterans Day, of course. And for the GIs coming back from World War II, walk me through how government policies would have shaped the fortunes of a Caucasian uh, GI coming back versus an African-American GI coming back. Um, and I think you use the example uh, as a foil of liberal San Francisco Bay saying that if it could happen in San Francisco, it could happen anywhere. So maybe those GIs are coming back to the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, if they're coming back to the San Francisco Bay Area, um, a white GI, there was an enormous, let me say, there was an enormous housing shortage after World War II everywhere in the country, the Bay Area and everywhere else. Uh, not only had no uh, civilian housing been built during the Depression, but during World War II, construction materials were prohibited for use for, for civilian purposes. So there was no housing built then either. And so you had all of these uh, returning veterans, both black and white, coming back to uh, the Bay Area and elsewhere and having no housing. The federal government uh, created a uh, system of suburbs on a whites-only basis for those returning veterans. 
Um, they uh, created, a, well, during the war, they created San Lorenzo, and that continued afterwards. Uh, perhaps uh, the best one known nationally in the Bay Area is uh, uh, Westlake and Daly City. There used to be a song sung about the boxes on the hillside made of uh, uh, ticky-tacky, and they all looked the same. That was a suburb of south of San Francisco. Um, that was all white. What happened was that prior to this time, prior to the federal government deciding to create all these suburbs, construction of homes was mostly on a one-by-one -one basis. Somebody would buy some land and hire a contractor to build a home, or maybe you had a, very, a contractor who was very willing to take risk. He might build two or three homes and hope to sell them. Um, but the giant suburbs like Westlake, over 10,000 homes, uh, could not be built by a developer who had no capital to finance the construction of uh, thousands and thousands of homes. Uh, the, there was just no way to do it. And so what happened is suburbs were created when developers like Henry Dolger, for example, in Westlake, south of San Francisco, or Bohannon, who developed San Lorenzo, uh, and many others uh, like that, uh, went to the federal government and submitted their plans for the development. The plans that they submitted to the Federal Housing Administration included the construction materials that would be used, the architectural design of the homes, the setback from the streets, the layout of the, the suburb itself, uh, and a commitment which the federal government required not to sell homes to African Americans. Mm -hmm. So the suburbs were developed on this basis. The, the developers like Dolger or Bohannon or perhaps the most famous one on the East Coast, uh, Levitt, in, uh, who built Levittown in New York. These developers could then take this FHA commitment to banks and get guaranteed loans, which would permit them to build tens of thousands of homes, uh, for which they yet had no buyers, uh, because the banks would give them those loans, uh, provided they had a federal guarantee. The Federal Housing Administration even required that these developers put in the deeds of every one of the homes in their suburbs a clause prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. So African-American war veterans who could easily have afforded these homes, uh, they, these were working class homes. They weren't for wealthy people or even middle class people. Uh, they typically sold for about $10,000 a piece. In, in today's money, that's maybe $90,000 or even $100,000. Any working class family can afford to buy a home for $100,000, twice national median income. African Americans who had jobs could have afforded these homes, were prohibited from buying into them, and uh, the result rented uh, homes in, uh, in cities, while whites of similar economic status uh, were able to buy these homes. Uh, the, the, concessions that the federal government uh, created by these subsidies were so enormous that a white family who was living in public housing, and public housing at that time was not for poor people, it was for working class families, um, could move into a, a, an FHA or a VA um, uh, development in one of these suburbs and pay less uh, mortgage charges for the uh, Westlake or San Lorenzo or any of these other developments, uh, then they were paying for rent in public housing. Uh, so the the subsidy was enormous. Mm -hmm. African Americans were restricted, prohibited from from living in these single family homes. They uh, uh, 
lived in, in rented apartments and suburbs. So for the next few generations, the white veterans uh, uh, and their families gained hundreds of thousand dollars in equity. Those homes now sell not for $100,000, but for $300,000, $500,000, perhaps even more. Uh, that equity enabled those white returning war veterans to um, send their children to college. They bequeathed uh, what remained of it to their heirs. Uh, the result is that today, on average, African-American incomes are about 60%, 60% of white incomes, but African-American wealth is about 10% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced after World War II and into the 1950s by the Federal Housing Administration. It, what, the the story that you just told is is somewhat shocking. I mean, it it flies against this mythology of kind of the self self made person, and really, you're you're telling a story of the government. Um, I'm I'm going to co opt a, a talking point. You know, they're they're choosing the winners and losers here. They're saying that the the white GIs, you know, we're going to give them a leg up, but not extend that same help to people who served right along with them, uh, fighting fighting over in Europe and Japan. Well, that's correct. I think you've stated that accurately. That was the uh, approach of the federal government. Of course, there were many, many other federal, state, and local policies that contributed to this uh, government-created segregation. But uh, we've just talked about one of the main ones. Hmm. Now you said that this this was really going on from the New Deal um, to around the 1950s, but in your book you call out that 60s really the 60s and 60s. I, I, mean, I was surprised to see the the number 1990 in some of the zoning discussions in your your book, um, but you also point out that really it was in 1866 that the Supreme Court declared that housing discriminate nation was unconstitutional. So here we have a, a century and a half of, of history where this is unconstitutional, but still this is going on, still still this is happening. So help me understand, um, help me understand how this was legally allowed to happen. Well, forgive me, but I have to correct what you uh, just described. The Civil War amendments that were passed after World War II, one of them was the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. But Section 2 of the 13th Amendment said that Congress uh, was uh, empowered to implement Section 1, to implement the abolition of slavery. And Congress interpreted that requirement of the 13th Amendment in 1866 to mean that it had to abolish not only the ownership of people, but all of the characteristics of slavery, the, what, the badges and incidents of slavery is a term the courts later used. Um, and among the badges and incidents of slavery was really any form of second-class citizenship, including a prohibition on uh, buying or renting property or a restriction on buying or renting property. Obviously, uh, all forms of discrimination against African-Americans in this country are a residue of slavery. Uh, they would not exist had not African-Americans uh, been enslaved, and if not, uh, a caste system was created as a, as a result. So Congress abolished, uh, prohibited uh, discrimination in housing in 1866 under the terms of the 13th Amendment. 
1883, the Supreme Court prohibited Congress from enforcing, prohibited enforcement of that provision. Uh, and the Congress and the Supreme Court continued for the next hundred years, nearly, to uh, misinterpret that 1866 law. In 1968, the Supreme Court recognized that its 1883 decision was incorrect and that Congress was proper in interpreting the 13th Amendment in 1866 to abolish uh, discrimination in housing. Now, the important thing to remember is that something doesn't become unconstitutional because the Supreme Court decides it in, at a later date. It was always unconstitutional. The Supreme Court was wrong. It's not that it was unconstitutional from 1883 to 1968, uh, that it was uh, constitutional rather from 1866 to 1968 to prohibit African-Americans from buying property on an equal basis. It was unconstitutional then too, but the Supreme Court erred in not recognizing that. Well, by the time the Supreme Court did recognize that any form of discrimination in housing, whether it was by the government or by private individuals, perpetuated the characteristics characteristics of slavery, the patterns in our urban areas of racial segregation were well established and entrenched. Sure. Uh, for example, um, uh, in the policies that I described a, a few minutes ago. So in 1968, uh, Congress passed a new law that uh, was not much different from the 1866 law. It had a few more enforcement provisions in it, but uh, aside from that, it was similar. But the new law said that it was now uh, unlawful to discriminate uh, in housing, to engage in racial discrimination in housing. But prohibiting ongoing discrimination in housing did nothing to undo the effects of the prior discrimination, such as I described. Uh, the wealth differences that I described don't get abolished simply because you say that now African-Americans are free to buy homes that are unaffordable to them. When they would have been affordable to them or to their ancestors, um, when they were created. So we've never done anything to remedy the constitutional violations that were uh, uh, enacted when uh, African-Americans were discriminated in the housing market, discriminated against in the housing market by federal policy. Hmm. You, you speak in a number of times in the book about instances where there was an existing integrated neighborhood uh, you know, prior to the New Deal, prior to World War II, um, that was then essentially segregated by government policy. I think you know, the San Francisco example, you spoke about kind of creating whole new communities, but how did the government segregate existing integrated communities? Well, that doesn't apply so much to the San Francisco Bay Area because uh, there weren't that many African Americans uh, living uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area prior to World War II. There were two great migrations of African Americans to northern cities. One was in World War I, uh, called the First Great Migration. The other was during World War II, the Second Great Migration, when African Americans came to urban areas to get jobs. And uh, the San Francisco Bay Area got most of its African-American population, not all of it, but most of its African-American population in uh, the second great migration, not the first. But there were instances of, of uh, African-Americans living in the Bay Area. For example, uh, there was an integrated neighborhood in West Oakland. Hmm. Um, 
uh, prior to World War II. It was integrated because the Pullman Company hired only uh, African Americans as uh, sleeping car porters. Uh, African Americans were also hired uh, as baggage handlers, and they were the only only African Americans who were hired as baggage handlers. Well, they had to live close enough to the railroad terminals to um, get to work. And so every city in the country had an integrated neighborhood uh, around the railroad terminals. Uh, other cities had integrated neighborhoods because people didn't have automobiles to get to work, just like the baggage handlers or the Pullman car porters. And so all workers had to live close enough to their workplaces. And most workplaces were downtown at that time, factories and other workplaces. So all workers had to live close enough uh, to their workplaces to be able to walk to work or take very short streetcar rides. And so you had uh, cities all over the country with integrated neighborhoods of, of working class families, uh, the kind of integration in urban areas that we don't know today, uh, where you had Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants or Jewish immigrants and African Americans all living in the same neighborhood where they um, so they could get to work. Uh, I, I spoke in the book about the, the autobiography of Langston Hughes, the great African American poet, novelist, uh, playwright who talks about how he was a um, uh, an adolescent in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood he said his best friend was Polish his, um, he dated a Jewish girl in high school uh, in Cleveland uh, we don't think of Cleveland uh, downtown Cleveland as having integrated neighborhoods today but he lived in an integrated neighborhood that's about half black and half white and the Public Works Administration uh, demolished housing in that neighborhood the Public Works Administration was one of the first New Deal agencies created in 1933. It demolished integrated housing in that neighborhood and built two separate projects, one for African Americans and one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation uh, that uh, hadn't previously existed and that structured the way in which those, that community developed. And it did the same thing um, in cities all across the country. There was an integrated neighborhood um, in the uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, near MIT, at the Central Square neighborhood, um, about half white and half black, uh, 60, 40, uh, probably. Uh, uh, and the, the uh, Public Works Administration demolished housing in that neighborhood and built separate segregated projects, creating a segregated pattern for the Boston metropolitan area that continues to this day. Mm -hmm. Same thing was done in Atlanta and St. Louis and many, many other cities uh, across the country where federal public housing projects, which I want to emphasize again, it was not for poor people at this time. It was for working class families, uh, families who could pay the full cost of the housing, of the public housing in their rents. These were not subsidized projects. But the federal government built this housing on a segregated basis everywhere in the country and uh, um, uh, created patterns of segregation that, that persist to this day. In San Francisco, if, if you want to talk about the Bay Area, there weren't a lot of integrated neighborhoods then. But uh, the, the federal government built four public housing projects in San Francisco during World War II. Uh, it built three of them in um, all white areas uh, uh, because there were very few African-Americans living here, but prohibited African-Americans who were coming to work in war industries from living in those projects in white areas. And it built one project for African-Americans in the Western Edition, the Fillmore District um, of uh, San Francisco explicitly for African-Americans. And the reason it picked the Fillmore District was because there were lots of vacant apartments uh, in that district and African-Americans were starting to move into them as Japanese were removed and placed in internment camps 
further inland, so there were few African Americans living in the Fillmore District at the time, and the federal government uh, decided that uh, that therefore would become a, an African American neighborhood, and so it built one project for African Americans only. Hmm. So the federal government, uh, and with the cooperation of state and local governments, um, in the, many cases, uh, certainly after um, the, the beginning of the 1930s, uh, the federal government began to require local housing agencies to be created to participate in the construction of this housing. And so it was both the local housing agencies and the federal government that collaborated to create uh, segregated patterns in cities that hadn't previously known segregation. Wow. Um, one topic that we haven't talked about yet is the issue of redlining and zoning. And, and I want to use a figure who um, the audience here in Seattle maybe knows well, which is uh, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. Um, our, I don't know if you know, but our park system here was designed by the Olmsted Brothers firm. Uh, so we, we probably have a very benign view of, of this historical figure. But uh, in your book, you describe him as an out, outspoken segregationist for his work on Herbert Hoover's advisory committee on zoning. What was what was the federal government's role in in zoning and in redlining, and and how did Olmsted deserve such a moniker? Well, uh, zoning was relatively unknown um, prior to the early years of the 20th century. In the first decade, a couple of decades of the 20th century, New York City adopted zoning rules for health and safety reasons, an attempt to establish fire codes, for example, for uh, slum dwellings. But it was relatively unknown. Um, in the 19-teens, uh, uh, a number of cities that were integrated, as I say, that had integrated housing, as I described a few minutes ago, because workers didn't have automobiles, uh, housing was much more integrated even in the South than other institutions. A number of cities that had integrated housing, places like Baltimore and St. Louis and Louisville, Kentucky, adopted zoning ordinances to attempt to impose segregation. And these ordinances typically uh, prohibited an African-American family from moving onto a block that was majority white or prohibited uh, white families from moving onto a block that was majority black. Uh, all white and all black wasn't the issue because there were very few blocks that were all white and all black. These were integrated neighborhoods in places like Baltimore and St. Louis and um, uh, Louisville. Um, the Supreme Court prohibited those uh, ordinances, those kinds of zoning ordinances, racially based zoning ordinances in 1917, just 100 years ago. Uh, it did so not for racial reasons, but because at the time, uh, you may recall and maybe your listeners recall, the Supreme Court's uh, a main mission was to uh, strike down any regulation that would interfere with property rights. Hmm. Uh, and so in addition to striking down minimum wage laws and health and safety laws, uh, they also struck down this ordinance because it interfered with a, a property owner's right to sell to whomever he pleased. Uh, so after the Supreme Court um, uh, abolished these explicit racial zoning ordinances, um, in 1920, uh, Her, uh, uh, Warren Harding was elected president. He uh, appointed as his Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, who later, uh, eight years later, became president himself. And Hoover established the Committee on Zoning that was in large part an attempt to evade the um, Supreme Court's decision that struck down racial zoning. 
And the, the goal of the committee was to persuade uh, communities all across the country to adopt zoning ordinances that would prevent the construction of apartments or, or attached houses or even single family homes and small lot sizes in communities that had uh, that were predominantly single family home, larger lot size communities. The uh, members of this committee, uh, many of them, including Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., were outspoken segregationists and acknowledged, admitted, uh, proclaimed that the reason that they were promoting zoning was to prevent racial mixing, to prevent the uh, integration of communities. Uh, the committee itself didn't have that as its official purpose. It pretended that it was purely an economic elitist uh, uh, campaign that it was engaged in to uh, persuade communities to, to adopt zoning ordinances. But the, the statements of the committee members, like Olmsted's, uh, made clear what uh, at least part of the motivation was. Well, as a result of the committee's work, uh, communities all over the country adopted zoning ordinances, separating out uh, areas where single-family homes uh, were and apartments were, in some cases prohibiting apartments uh, from being uh, permitted in the community altogether, in some cases restricting them to certain zone areas. And that's uh, created, uh, in many cases, uh, the kind of segregation that we know today in uh, communities all over the country. It was another contributing factor, along with the policies that I've previously described. So it seems like this, what started out as racial segregation, gets recodified as economic segregation. That's correct. I'm not suggesting that economic elitism wasn't part of the motivation. But it wasn't the only motivation, and the, the statements of the committee members themselves are good evidence that it wasn't uh, the only motivation. Hmm. After reading your book, I can't help but look at um, the topic that I'm interested in, which is the topic of homelessness, and it's a primarily a population that is people of color. Um, that that the ripples of this historic pattern is why we're seeing so many people living on the streets or living in shelters today. I, am I wrong in seeing that connection or, or is there some truth there, do you think? Well, I think there's some truth there. I don't think you're wrong in seeing the connection. It's certainly not, uh, the housing policies certainly aren't the only reason, although um, uh, as I described before, the wealth differences uh, that were created as a result of unconstitutional federal housing policy uh, persist to this day. Um, and uh, wealth is a much more important indicator of economic security than even income. Mm. Uh, you can weather uh, bouts of unemployment or other uh, uh, economic uh, misfortunes if you've got wealth to fall back on. If you have no wealth to fall back on, you're likely to be homeless. But there were other federal policies that were equally unconstitutional that um, outside the housing area that have contributed to the enormous income differences between African-Americans and whites today. I, I mentioned earlier that African-American incomes are 60% of white incomes. Uh, that's um, If you compare that to the wealth gap, it's pretty close, but it's still a substantial difference. And that was uh, that's in part also the result of unconstitutional federal policy. For example, uh, again in the New Deal in 1935, uh, we uh, adopted something uh, called the National Labor Relations Act, or popularly known as the Wagner Act, after Senator Robert Wagner of New York, who proposed the, the law. And the National Labor Relations Act uh, 
gave uh, the federal government the power to certify unions as the uh, bargaining agents for all of the workers in their jurisdiction. Well, when uh, Wagner proposed that act, uh, there was a provision in it that uh, prohibited uh, racial discrimination by unions that were federally certified. That prohibition was eliminated uh, during debate in Congress on the amendment, and the uh, National Labor Relations Act was therefore adopted uh, in the mid-1930s as an act that permitted uh, the federal government to certify unions even if they excluded African Americans from membership. Well, the result was that the uh, unions, in, particularly in the construction trades, uh, the best paying jobs and blue collar jobs in the country, all of them excluded African Americans from membership. So the result was that um, not only were African Americans prohibited from uh, living in the suburbs that were created in the post-war period, they were prohibited from participating in their construction. And those construction jobs were one of the chief engines by which the white working class uh, moved into the middle class. They were very, very good paying jobs. Well, income inequality is, is transmitted intergenerationally. We know we're not a, a, a well, highly mobile society. And if your families, if your parents' income is low, you are much more likely to have low income yourself as an adult um, than if your parents' income was, was uh, middle class. And so uh, this federal policy, and I've just given you one example of many, but this particular federal policy contributed to the low incomes that African Americans have today, uh, even though uh, the federal government no longer uh, certifies unions uh, that uh, engage in racial discrimination. It's another example of the federal government engaging in unconstitutional policy, which was unconstitutional even if the federal government pursued it. Uh, it didn't start being unconstitutional when the federal government uh, abandoned the policy, and the federal government didn't start uh, refusing to certify uh, unions that excluded African Americans until the mid-1960s, and the policy didn't really take effect until the 1970s, fairly recently. Hmm. You started out this conversation by saying that your, your entry point here was really about education reform and schools, and, and it it reveals to me why you use uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' uh, 2007 opinion about school integration as one of your intellectual foils um, in introducing the topic in your book. Justice Roberts says that because the government didn't have a role in segregating neighborhoods, therefore the government doesn't have a role in integrating schools. Um, and you, tell, you say that you know, his, his legal theory is fine, but his facts are, are fundamentally flawed. If, if Justice Roberts was in front of you today, what would you want him to make sure that he comes away from a conversation with you knowing? Well, I would like him to know the history that I've just described, but you know, the reality is I really don't care if he knows it or not, because the Supreme Court does not lead public opinion, this follows public opinion. And so long as the public and in particular, the educated public and the policy-making public. So long as the public uh, persists in, in maintaining this myth that I've described, that this all happened by accident, that the federal government had no role. So long as the public has that myth, we can't accept, expect the Supreme Court to um, uh, have a different factual history. Uh, so 
I think a much more important priority than convincing John Roberts of anything. It would be nice, of course, if he was convinced, but a much more important priority is to educate the public so that um, in future years, a Supreme Court, whether John Roberts is on it or not, will understand that it has a constitutional obligation to remedy uh, the segregated lines that exist in every metropolitan area of this country. Hmm. Which takes me perfectly to the last question that I have for you. You you close the book by acknowledging that the remedies to this this difficult history are neither easy nor particularly politically palatable right now. Um, but you also said that you feel quite hopeful looking into the future. Can you help us understand what those remedies might look like and why why you feel so much optimism? Well, uh, the remedies. As, as you just mentioned, uh, would seem ridiculous today because we haven't really absorbed the fact that they're constitutionally required. And uh, one of the things I say in the book, as you know, is that uh, letting bygones be bygones is not a constitutional policy. And if we want to be in, uh, and call ourselves a constitutional democracy that respects civil rights, we're obligated to remedy this. The remedies in some cases will be extreme, in some cases quite modest. Um, we should for example, at the most extreme um, end, we should subsidize African-Americans to move into the suburbs that are now unaffordable and that would have been affordable to them and to their children and grandchildren had they permitted to move into them. Uh, and I'm not talking about subsidies for poor people. I'm talking about for middle and working class African-Americans who are still without wealth uh, that's comparable to whites and unable to, to move into uh, predominantly middle-class neighborhoods. Uh, so that's one extreme is, is actual subsidies. We have many programs or several programs uh, that subsidize uh, uh, poor people in their housing, but those programs uh, typically today uh, reinforce segregation. Uh, the, the something called the Section 8 voucher program, uh, maybe your, your listeners have heard of it, it's a program that uh, provides a subsidy to low-income families that enables them to rent apartments at the market rates in their community, their broad community, uh, without paying more than 30% of their income in rent. Uh, and uh, but that's that program reinforces segregation because the subsidies aren't great enough to permit families to move into middle-class communities. Uh, they are actually too great to enable them to to move into already segregated communities. So landlords exploit the program by charging more than, um, uh, you know, than would be required uh, by the market. Mm -hmm. That program uh, could easily be reformed to uh, provide higher subsidies for families moving into middle-class areas and lower families, subsidies for families moving into already segregated neighborhoods. Same thing is true of another program that we have for low-income families. The Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is a, a, a program run through the, the Treasury Department that gives a tax credit to developers who uh, build low income housing developments. But again, they're predominantly placed in already segregated communities because developers prefer to build there because the land is cheaper and there's less community opposition. It's easy to rent an apartment to somebody who walks by. Uh, so. That program could easily be reformed to provide uh, incentives to build in um, higher opportunity communities than in lower opportunity communities. 
And then we could do something about the zoning rules that we talked about earlier. We could prohibit uh, suburbs from having zoning rules that, that won't allow the construction of townhouses or single family homes on small lot sizes, the kinds of things that would be affordable to working class families or even apartments uh, scattered throughout the suburb. Those zoning laws could be understood as having uh, been have, had sufficient racial basis to be unconstitutional and should be uh, prohibited. So there are many remedies we could pursue, but we're not going to pursue them. They're all politically unrealistic unless there's a new consensus that we don't have de facto segregation, but in fact it's unconstitutional, de jure segregation, as the courts would say, that require a remedy. And that's where your hope lies? Well, uh, my hope lies uh, in the fact that uh, we are now having a more honest and uh, accurate conversations about the uh, history and legacy uh, and effects, present-day effects of slavery and Jim Crow than I think we've had at any previous time in American history. I'm certainly uh, frightened by the uh, exposure of uh, a considerable white supremacist sentiment in the country, which has uh, taken place under the current administration, but uh, I'm also uh, hopeful because on, uh, in the opposite end of, of the national debate, we are uh, confronting uh, monuments to slavery and taking down statues of, uh, of uh, those who fought to maintain slavery. There was a, a speech, I'm sure uh, many of your uh, listeners have read it, that, uh, that uh, the mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, gave upon the removal of uh, a statue of Robert E. Lee that was um, a more accurate, passionate um, uh, description of uh, slavery and its effects, remaining effects today, than uh, any other I've read, and it's uh, the, trans the full transcript is uh, on the New York Times website. Uh, it was inconceivable even a few years ago that a white elected politician would make a speech of that kind. So I think that there are many hopeful signs as well, and if we can continue this conversation and, and begin to confront uh, the, the unconstitutional uh, racial history of this country, how we created the caste system that we have today, then I think there's a possibility of making progress. Well, I think Mayor Landrieu's speech and as well your book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, both are must-reads for 2017, and I hope your book finds its way on the many holiday gift lists this year. Richard, thank you so much for sharing your work with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. <laughs>